Well, good morning and welcome to The Vine. It's so good to see you all here today. Um, We had to call a bit of an audible today because our church planting resident, uh, Michael McKittrick, was supposed to be preaching this morning, but uh, their third child decided it was time to emerge from the womb yesterday. And so if you see them, you can congratulate them. Uh, Baby girl, I don't think, does anybody know if we have a name yet? As far as I know, there's no name. There probably is, but now, but yesterday they were still debating, I think. So we can pray for that, that they come to a conclusion for the sake of that child. <laughs> I'm sure it's just baby right now. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, gonna, I'm stepping in here kind of last minute. So we, um, if you're new here, we, for the last three weeks, have been doing our annual vision series. Like, what are we all about as a church? And we're all about gospel community mission. And we just kind of drill down into that every year just to remind ourselves who we are as a church. And the plan was that we were going to start uh, 1 Peter today. But as a result of Michael having that all prepared and done, um, we're going to let him do that next week when he's back. And so he'll kick it off next week. And so we're going to just kind of do a one-off here that will really tie in well to our heartbeat as a church um, as we talk about some things from God's Word this morning. So... If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to, the, to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Um, paper, digital, on the screen. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some behind the sound booth there on the other side of the wall. And we're in Ephesians. So Ephesians is in the New Testament. And it's about seven or eight books in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. And then we've got Galatians. And then finally Ephesians there. So whatever that is, about eight books, I think. Um, and chapter 2. Okay, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at the first five verses this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help this morning that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, give us ears to hear. Lord, we want to say afresh this morning that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, I want to pray against the lies of pride. I I want to pray for... um, just seeing with new eyes the blessing of humility and especially the humility of coming underneath your word. Um, This morning, may it cause us to rejoice. May it cause us to be awakened to the greatness of your gospel and the greatness of your mercy and love. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So whenever we look at a portion of Scripture, We always want to know what the context is, okay? 
these, these scriptures didn't just come out of nowhere. They all had an original intended audience. And so for us today, the intended audience was a group of believers, probably in house churches, 2,000 years ago, spread all over a major um, metropolitan area in the ancient Near East called Ephesus, okay? So Paul is this guy who was converted by God, and he became one of the most ferocious proponents for Christianity. In the, before that, he hated the church, persecuted the church like crazy. God converted him and turned him into the greatest, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. As a result, he planted churches, planted churches, and he planted church in Ephesus. And as a result, he's writing to them 2,000 years ago in, in, in the heart of a, just a bustling metropolis overflowing with unbelief and, and challenges around every corner for the, for, the, for the small church there, the house churches there. And he writes to them, and he intends for this letter to be passed around to the, all the different house churches in Ephesus. And they're to read it and, and to glean from it. And, and Paul's whole goal is to encourage them. He wants them to be encouraged in the gospel. He wants them to see what God has accomplished in them, in the gospel. And that's the first three chapters. Here's what has happened to you. Here's how you became a Christian. Okay? And then the last two chapters, last three chapters, he wants them to live a certain way. So here's who you are. In the light of who you are, be who you are. Okay? And here's how you should live in light of who you are, in light of who God says you are. Okay? So we're going to look at the who God says you are part in just a powerful passage. And that's what I just read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Okay? I remember very poignantly when I was in college, we had a guy who was um, kind of a campus pastor at my university where I, where I attended. And he would come and hang out with my roommates and I sometimes. And he would talk to us about the Bible. We would pray together. And he just wanted to help us grow in our faith. And I remember one night, very poignantly, he came to us, guys, um, and he said, guys, what do you think? What do you think is the essence of salvation? Which picture is, like, summarizes how someone becomes a Christian? Which one is better? Is it, is it like this? Is it that you're kind of drowning or maybe on the edge of drowning in the ocean? You're fledgling. You can't swim. You're about to go under. And, 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 and Jesus sees you in your desperate state there. And he says, you know what, I'm going to throw a life preserver out. And he throws you a life preserver. And you see it, and you desire it, and you reach out and you grab it. And Jesus reels you in, and you know, it's happy ending, all safe, all good. Is it like that? Or is it more like you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, and Jesus gets on his scuba gear and he's, well, he probably doesn't need scuba gear, but Jesus gets on whatever he needs or if nothing that he needs, and he swims down, and he gets you, and he pulls you off the bottom of the ocean, swims to the surface, pulls you onto the beach, resuscitates you, and you're alive. So our college pastor, he asks us guys in the room, which, which is it like? And I'm like, duh, it's the first one, of course. And he's like, have you read Ephesians 2? What does it say? And you were, verse 1, and you were dead. Not just like treading water, not just fledgling, not splashing around a little bit, and almost dead. But, what does it say? And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead means dead, right? Here's, here's a picture of what deadness looks like. Paul just lays it out for us. Verse 2. I was following the... Now he's writing to the Ephesians, and these are, these are Christian folks, but he's reminding them of where they've come from. He's reminding them of how they became Christians. This is who they used to be. You followed the course of this world. This is what your deadness looks like, right? And so, so you were a slave to the world, the course of the world. Secondly, you're slave to Satan, God's arch enemy, the opposite of all that God is, a slave to him, following the prince, see it there in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then third, a slave to my flesh. So slave to the world, slave to the devil, slave to my flesh. What does it say there? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And that's just a biblical way of saying my desires that I just find that are in me that are contrary to what God wants. There's all these passions in my heart that I'm just giving full, full vent to and just going for it. That's who I used to be, right? Didn't have a care about what God thought. I just wanted what I wanted. Those were passions of my flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So that's pretty bleak, right? That's what deadness looks like. Being a slave to all of those things. And, and, and it's... And it's not just like this. It's not that I was just once a good guy and kind of got caught up in some stuff and, and, and kind of hanging out with the wrong crowd and accidentally one thing led to another, wrong place, wrong time, made some bad decisions, and whoops, oh, here we are. No, it's, it's far worse than that. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here it is, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It says by nature. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Why, why is Paul just keeps running with this, right? Just digging in there, painting this picture. He says, by nature, you were an object of wrath. Well, what, what is he getting at there? What's by nature? I think it's kind of like my dog. We've got a dog. Her name is Molly. She's a sweetheart, okay? And, and just, just be warned, this illustration is not for the faint of heart, okay? Um, one of the cool things about Molly is that she loves to help clean up around the house, Okay? And she's handy. Super handy. Like when, she, when, when my kids, four of them, when they were little, sitting in their high chair, making a mess, you know, food kind of all over the place as babies do. Molly, she camps out right there. She cleans up. She cleans up the floor, right? We, we, we take the kid out to, to wash them down and, you know, hose them down or whatever we do. And, uh, and, and, and Molly, she cleans up the, the high chair. Easy. Love it. So handy. Well, she's, lots, she's willing to clean up lots of other things as well. And, and so one night, this is probably six, seven, eight years ago, uh, our youngest, who's now almost eight, uh, was just a babe. And so just like at that stage where just cute, like prime cuteness stage, chubby, squishy, and can't really move around yet, but just like hangs out, you know what I mean? That can sit up, but can't really like roll around or crawl around. So she's just sitting there. Um, after we'd eaten 
just a really nice dinner that Kim made of macaroni and cheese. Kids love it, adults love it, mac and cheese. And so we were just upstairs after having this nice dinner and watching some TV, and little Maya, little chubby Maya, is sitting there just all hunched over their big, fat, chubby belly, little baby belly. And all of a sudden, bah! Just out there. All the things that had come into her stomach came out of her stomach. The big reversal, right? It's supposed to stay in. Well, it decided to come out. And not just like baby, like baby spit up, like this is man size, okay? Like this is the real deal. So we're like, oh my word, like, you know, you got kids, you're kind of used to it, but you're never used to it, you know what I mean? And this is nasty. And so Kim and I will always be looking at each other like, who's going to deal with this? And like, oh, just, man. And then it's like light bulb. Where's Molly? (laughs) Right? Like, I hate to clean up puke, but Molly doesn't mind. Right? And, and, And yes... This is so disgusting, but it's so helpful, right? So helpful, nasty, but so thankful, right? And and so here's the thing. I want you to see this. This is just what dogs do, right? We, We love our dogs in Madison, you know, but they are foul creatures, you know what I mean? That's just what they do. By their very nature, this is what she does. Molly, come on up. And have at it. And she doesn't know any different, right? This is just her nature. She's kind of dead to the options. She doesn't sit back and weigh the options and like go in her head like, I wonder if I should help out Kim and Zach or should I not? Like, no, she's like on it. Because what? She's a dog. That's what dogs do, right? She had, now check this out. She's got freedom, but only in this sense. She's free to be who she is according to her nature. She's free to be who she is according to her nature. So what's her nature? Her nature doesn't say, I've got a bunch of choices. Her nature just says, I'm doing this, duh, I'm a dog, right? She's not very picky, right? So being, so, so by nature means she's kind of locked in her dog state. She's, she's locked in her dogness. She couldn't be freed from this if she tried. If she wanted to be free from this, she would have to become a, a different creature altogether. You with me? In order to her to be free from her dog nature, she would have to be changed into something else. And, but since she's a dog, she does what dogs do. And I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at. It's really helpful to think about it along those lines when he says, by nature, children of wrath. Paul is saying that apart from Jesus, apart from him swimming down to the bottom of the ocean and dragging us up to the shore and breathing life into us, we just do what we do by nature. And what is it? By nature, we're children of wrath, meaning by nature, we sin against God. That's just our default setting. That's how we existed from the womb, right? That's just human nature, okay? We're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 3. See, the Bible says that that's our nature, not to want God. It's to run the other way from God. God makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like it when he shines his light of his holiness on my sin. So I'm like, I can get out of here, or I just got to suppress it. I know that God's there when I look at the heavens. It's clear, but man, I've got to suppress it. Because I don't like how it makes me feel. It makes me uncomfortable. That's our default setting. Because we're dead in our sin. 
And, and dead guys and dead gals are unresponsive, un, unfeeling. So, man, verse 1, 2, and 3, that's pretty bleak. If we're dead and unresponsive and unfeeling, what's, what's the hope? The hope is that God can raise the dead. The hope is that God can raise the dead. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul, this is so dark. Can you help me out? Yes, he says. Verse 4 comes along. And what does it say? The two of the sweetest words you've ever heard. It's like if you're drowning under the water and all of a sudden you're brought to the surface and you're breathing fresh air that saves you for the first time. It's like, man, that's so satisfying. And that's what you have, verse 4. Two words, but God. But God. But God. Two of the sweetest words found in the Bible in light of verse 1, 2, and 3. But God, and see the emphasis, it didn't say anything about me. It didn't say, but me and my own effort. It didn't say, but like me and my ability to climb a ladder of good deeds and clean myself and make myself presentable to God. It didn't say like, but me and and all the people that think I'm cool and they're voting for me and, and they think that I should be acceptable to God. It didn't say anything about me. It just said, the emphasis is on God. In in light of this dire situation, the emphasis is all on God. But God, read what it says. But God, in light of this, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Like he's, he's got to remind him still again. It's like he's saying it again. I've already heard it once in verse 1. He's saying it again in verse 5. It's like Paul is kind of staggered here, and he re- repeats it again, dead in your trespasses. Even then, even when you were dead, dead as a doornail, dead means dead, bottom of the ocean, dead. Even then, this is what God did. He, what? Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved made us alive together, even when we were dead. Who made us? Did I make myself? Did I pull myself up by my moral bootstraps and make myself alive to Jesus? Did I just, like, figure it out all on my own? Like, duh. Like, why wouldn't you want to believe the gospel? Like, so how come the guy down the street doesn't? Well, he just hasn't figured it out like I have. Is that really how, how we want to attribute our salvation? Yeah, figure it out. It makes sense. And he didn't figure it out. She didn't figure it out. So yeah, like, that just leads to arrogance. God gets the glory, because that's the emphasis of the Bible. He's the one that made us alive. That's what it says, right? By grace, not my works, not all the stuff that I could do, not me figuring it out, not my smarts, not my abilities, not my efforts. No, it's God's grace that saved us. Verse 5, see it there? Most of you probably heard of Karl Marx, and he's the thought leader behind, uh, one of the thought leaders behind communism. And he famously had a, a phrase about Christianity. 
he was no fan. And he said this. He said, Christianity is an opiate for the people and a crutch for the weak. An opiate for the people and a crutch for the weak. So do you guys know what an opiate is? An opiate is just something that you take to help you feel better. And here's what Karl Marx thought. He thought that Christians have a problem because they know that they're weak and life is hard. You know, that's kind of human nature to understand that life is hard. And so some people just can't take it anymore. They're not strong enough. And so they need something to help comfort them. They need something that they can take to help them feel better. Because when you really face the facts that there is no God like he believed, and we live in this cold, silent, purposeless universe, and suffering comes along your way, and that's tough. Like, is really the worldview, you know, according to him, yes, some people are strong, some people are weak. It's kind of like natural selection, and some people just get screwed over in life, and then they die. I mean, that's, I mean, truly, that's, in, in the essence, the atheist worldview. There's nobody out there. And, and so to make us feel better in light of that, we come up with religion. And Christianity comes up with this whole story about Jesus. And, and he would say, we just take that like an opiate to make us feel better. Because we can't handle living in the reality of this world as it is. And we need a helpful crutch to help us get along. Here's the deal. I think Paul would say, based on these verses, and I, I would agree, that we should, when, he, when, when Karl Marx makes that assertion, we should be the first to stand up and say, you know what, I can sign up for being weak. Yes and amen, I am weak. The Bible tells me I'm weak. My experience tells me I'm weak. It's not hard to figure out. I'm weak, right? I don't have it all together. But I don't think based on this text, that Karl Marx went far enough. Listen to what my friend Michael Kelly wrote. He says this, But according to Ephesians 2, Christianity isn't a crutch for the weak because that statement isn't insulting enough. A crutch gives us far too much credit and robs the gospel of its full implication and power. Christianity isn't a crutch for the weak. It's a stretcher. For the dead. It's not just that, you, that, that we were weak, uh, if you're a Christian this morning, and God kind of helped you out by giving you a crutch so, to kind of help you hobble along a little better. Like, what help is a crutch to a dead guy? Right? Zero help. It's that we were dead, brought nothing to the table to contribute to our salvation, and God put us on the Jesus stretcher and took us to his hospital. And then what happened? Verse 5 happened. He made us alive. He made us alive. Paul's talked a lot about being dead to God apart from his interaction in our lives. But God is not the God of the dead. God is God of the living. He loves to make people alive in him he loves to swim down to the bottom of the ocean and resuscitate. He loves to unlock, unlock our sinful nature that only wants to gravitate away from God and towards our own destruction and give us a whole new nature. If you're a Christian today, he, verse 5, made you alive in the sense that he's made you a new person. Why would I say that? Simply because the Bible says that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, check it out. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new 
creation, right? A new nature, a new awakening, new taste buds in your mouth so that sin doesn't taste good anymore. It tastes bad, and Jesus doesn't taste bad. He, he, he looks really good. He looks like living water that satisfies. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But why would he do this? Why would God do this? Well, the text tells us. Verse 4, let's look at it again. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. There's reason number one. Man, he's rich in mercy. Number two, because of, and because of the great love with which he loved us. So he's rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in mercy, great love, mercy, and love. See, God is rich in mercy. He's not poor in mercy. He's got a a massive billion-dollar mercy bank account. Like, God doesn't bounce mercy checks. You with me? He doesn't bounce mercy checks. Those checks always get cashed. And and it wasn't, what does it say? It wasn't small love. It wasn't wishy-washy love. It wasn't medium-sized love. It wasn't lukewarm love. It was, what does it say? Great love, right? Because of his great love. See, salvation is due to his great, profound richness and mercy and his great love. It's, again, it's not about what we brought to the table. It's not how we clean ourselves up. It's not how we saw God and wanted God and reached out to God all on our own. No, it's due to God making us alive because of his great love, because of his great mercy. And that's, that's just, isn't that amazing grace, right? Sweetness to our ears in light of the situation we were in. Paul's just reminding them, man, you got to see this. you got to feel this because this will change your life when you really get it. We've got two sets of friends, two married couples that are really close to us that have both adopted children with special needs. One of the kids has cerebral palsy um, and one of the kids has a rare blood disorder. So they've got significant medical issues. And, And these kids, as you can imagine, they oftentimes get overlooked when it comes to adoption, right? because of their profound medical needs. Well, here's the deal. With these families, they just simply chose to embrace this challenge before these kids ever even knew that these were going to be their parents. Before they even knew that these people existed, those parents saw that picture, read that description, and chose freely to just set their love on this child. And, and, and what did the child contribute? The child didn't contribute anything other than their need. Other than just their existence in a state of needs. The, the kids didn't bring anything to the table other than that. And these parents set their love on them and adopted them. And those, those kids didn't earn anything. They were just simply recipients of mercy and love apart from anything they did. And this, man, this adoptive love is so beautiful. But make no mistake, it is costly. Lots of physical therapy, lots of medical bills, lots of trips to the doctor, lots of, man, potential for heartbreak 
if these medical situations, you know, there's no guarantee of anything. But, but because of the great love that they just chose to give this child, is it worth the risk? Absolutely it's worth the risk. And that's the picture of God's love that's shown in Ephesians 2, that Paul writes to that Ephesian church 2,000 years ago, and he writes to us today. Encourage them in the gospel. Remind them of their new identity based on what they used to be. Remember who they used to be. You used to be a child of wrath. Now you have a father who is willing to take that wrath upon himself in your place to adopt you. The wrath has been dealt with. That's no longer who you are anymore. Based on his sheer free Love and mercy. Paul's just writing to remind them. Paul's just writing to remind us of these truths. What you were once defined by doesn't define you anymore. You're a new creation. You've been made alive to Jesus so that Jesus is your greatest trust. Jesus is your greatest treasure. That's what salvation means. So it's very important that we meditate on these facts of history so that it doesn't just remain factual information, but that it explodes our hearts with fresh love and joy and awe of who God is and what he's done for those that are his. So if you're a Christian this morning, receive that. Meditate on that. Fight for a heart that just doesn't yawn at the cross and the empty tomb, but goes, man, God, I'm so thankful. Thank you, Jesus. But let me close with this. What, what, what if this morning you don't, you're not really sure, or maybe you know for sure that this isn't you? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning and are wondering if God could or would make you alive as well. And the answer is if you're wondering, yes. He is willing. Are you willing? That's what he says to you this morning. Are you willing? See, you can have full assurance and confidence that this mercy and love is for you. Why would I say that? Because Jesus demonstrated it. He put it on display in history, and that's what Romans 5, 8 says. You want to know that God loves you? Well, look to the historical demonstration. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do I know that he loves me? Why don't you leave that up there on the screen? Why does, how do I know that he loves me? Because he demonstrated it in his death for me. The cross and the empty tomb is the ultimate expression of God's love made manifest in history as a historical fact. So you don't have to wonder You just look to it, look to the past, know that it happened, and know that if you believe it and receive it, it's all for you. Do you want that love where the wrath of God was taken away from you and placed on himself in Jesus in space, time, and history on a Roman cross to pay for what you should have paid in order to save you? How does that sound? Do you want that love? And if you do, you can know that God is making you alive. Then what do you do? Well, here's what you should do. Romans 10.8 says this. If you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confess that Jesus is Lord. Live in light of it. Believe that, that, that this fact of the resurrection is true because it is. It's the biggest stamp of approval that God could ever make that says all of this is true. Jesus risen from the dead. It's true. It's the ultimate vindication of, of all that Jesus said and did. Death has been defeated. His words are proven true. Sin no longer has a sting. Resurrection is true. We will live forever. And so if you want to make that choice right now, you can know for sure that this love of God is for you as well. Repent, believe, trust, treasure Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this word would come alive to us. And we thank you so much that you've given it to us. Lord, would you help us see what we once were and maybe for the millionth time today um, remind ourselves of who we are. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe um, want to know that you're their father, that they're yours for the first time. Lord, would you awaken that in them? In Jesus' name, amen.